Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Tuesday and lots in today's news mix, including a high-level meeting of the BRICS officials from the five member nations kicking off their three-day summit in South Africa. China's President Xi in attendance, but of course Russia's President Putin a no-show as expected. He'll join virtually. The BRICS hoping to expand their rankings to additional nations dissatisfied with the West. Call it more BRICS in the wall, perhaps. We're live in Johannesburg with the latest. And in business news, Microsoft's diplomatic dance, the tech giant making fresh concessions to get its merger deal with Activision Blizzard approved in the United Kingdom. Is it game on or game over for the $75 billion deal? A full report coming up. Plus, life in the VinFast lane. Vietnamese electric car company VinFast soaring more than 90% on its Nasdaq debut. At one point, actually VinFast sporting a larger market cap than either Volkswagen or Ford. What does VinFast offer American consumers, perhaps, that others don't? Well, we'll be speaking to the company's CEO. And from EVs going fast, who can the bounce back last? And has the August angst past. U.S. stocks on track for a second day of gains. You can see that before you. The bulls trying to stem August losses, even as benchmark U.S. bond yields surpass levels not seen since 2007. Europe also managing strong and positive gains there, as you can see. And a better tone across the Asia session, too, with Chinese stocks enjoying an oversold bounce. The Hang Seng rising after seven days of losses amid ongoing concerns about China's economic woes. China's search engine Baidu set to rally in U.S. training after a earnings beat from them. And SoftBank shares rallying almost 1.5% too in Japan on news that it's planning to sell off its chip design arm, Arm. This was a mega $32 billion purchase, if you remember, back in 2016. And now it's set to IPO in the U.S. next month. We'll discuss a busy show as always. But first, we do begin in Pakistan, where an urgent rescue mission is underway. Eight people, including six children, are trapped in a chairlift dangling hundreds of metres over a mountainous region. Officials say the children were heading to school when one of the chairlift's cables snapped. Safiya Saifi joins us now live from Islamabad. Terrifying scene, Safiya, for, the, for those, into, those people that are involved in this. What more do we know about those rescue efforts? Julia, this is completely transfixed 
the nation for the past couple of hours. They've, they've, this was part uh, of their school run. It's a beautiful part uh, of Pakistan uh, in the northwest of the country, but it's also an impoverished uh, part of the country. So these cable cars are not uncommon uh, in that area where valleys and communities are connected by these kind of rickety kind of village made um, cable cars that connect uh, these communities from one to the other. So it was a very run of the mill school uh, run for that area. The children uh, in uh, that cable car that is suspended 900 feet uh, above ground. There's rocky terrain below and streams. Uh, it's been suspended there since nine in the morning when one of the cables snapped. Uh, we've been told one of the children had a mobile phone and he's been speaking to people on the ground. We know that two of the children are unconscious and come slipping in and out of consciousness. There has been efforts uh, for a rescue operation. There are very senior SSG commandos who are manning helicopters uh, to try to reach uh, the people in that cable car. Initially, they've uh, given medicine and food uh, to the passengers, to the people that they're trying to rescue. Apparently, two of the children also vomited uh, inside uh, that cable car, almost like a cage, which is upturned and suspended uh, above the valley. There, it is a very fragile and sensitive uh, rescue operation. Uh, there have been many attempts, there have been three attempts so far to get them out uh, by commandos and by helicopters that are there. Uh, the commandos being suspended uh, from those helicopters, but the, the wind created by the helicopters itself is becoming precarious and causing the one cable that is holding up that car to move and that is being seen as dangerous. So it's a very slow and steady uh, rescue operation. The country's prime minister has called it an alarming uh, situation and just in about an hour and a half it's going into sundown. Uh, the sun is going to set and it's going to become even more dangerous. These kind of incidents are not uncommon uh, in Pakistan but the the level of how dangerous this specific incident is and for how many hours this has dragged on for has become a major talking point and a major cause for concern in the country as everyone is praying and hoping that the rescue goes smoothly and those young people in that cable car are returned safely to their homes by the end of the day. Julia? Yes, we pray with them. Sophia, thank you for that report there. And if we get any further updates, we will come back to you. Thank you. Now, Xi Jinping says China and South Africa have a comprehensive strategic partnership and he wants to take it to a new level. President Xi met with his South African counterpart as the BRICS summit kicked off. Key figures from Brazil, China, Russia, India and South Africa are meeting in Johannesburg. Together, the BRIC countries account for more than 40 percent of the world's population. And they'll be talking this week about expanding the group. Nearly two dozen countries, including Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, are asking to join. Russian President Vladimir Putin is attending the three-day summit virtually since he has a warrant out for his arrest from the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes. David McKenzie joins us now. David, these nations, China, India, for example, powerful, very powerful in their own right. I'm just trying to imagine the sway they would have if you start to add nations like Mexico, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia to the mix. Uh, Julian, I think that's partly the point. Uh, this is a move uh, pushed by China very much to expand BRICS to become a kind of uh, de facto 
counterpoint to the G7 and possibly even the G20, but certainly the G7. I'm joined now. Uh, very good to have uh, Pranjal Sharma, uh, economist, uh, economic analyst and author from India. You know, for many years, BRICS was seen as China says jump and BRICS says how high. Is that still the case? Well, I think when it was conceived as an as a acronym by Goldman Sachs, it was about the four five rising economies of the world beyond the uh, the OECD countries, uh, the uh, Europe and US. But I think it's it's evolved to a, a different level. And what I see today with President Ramaphosa inviting 50 heads of state and many of them from the African continent, I think it has become more a concept than just a grouping of five countries. These kind of concepts sometimes fade with time. You've had the Belt and Road that certainly China still wants to push, other initiatives. Just my experience here in the last few hours, you get a sense that BRICS wants to be something more. Is it a good move to expand to more countries? Is that something that the Indian government, for example, wants? I think the Indian government's position is that expansion by itself is not a, is not, they don't object to that. But I think what they want to get into is the details of the expansion. What are the terms, the criterion, who will come in and why? I think in some ways, this is a summit where BRICS has to go back to its foundations and try to define what it is and then take the next step forward. Expansion would be one of the expressions of that. Uh, the BRICS is an odd group of bedfellows in some way. You have the world's biggest autocracy in China, the world's biggest democracy in India. How can India and China cooperate when it comes to BRICS, when there's so much competition there? Well, there is. this is uh, part of the key issue in BRICS, and how do you reconcile some of these challenges? And therefore, I think the only way ahead, if BRICS is to survive, and you're right, uh, David, that something like this could easily collapse because of the various contradictions. So therefore, a common objective, if you redefine it from the perspective of working for the Global South, as it were, where you say that these five countries and the Global South and, and some of the most important emerging economies in the African continent can work together, then perhaps it has a reason to be there. But otherwise, some of these contradictions are going to hobble the growth of BRICS. If it continues as it is and expands into a, a greater format, what role will it play when it comes to world economic affairs? The, one of the things that do seem to thread these countries together is a criticism of the World Bank, the IMF and other Western, quote-unquote, multilateral lenders. I think the view today is that the Global South does not have the voice that it deserves. I often say that we have legacy economies and we have growth economies. If you look at the world, the, the forecast by most uh, uh, global banks, including IMF, you see the biggest growth companies by GDP. They are not in the West. They are in Asia and Africa. Now, the question is, do they have a say adequate say. Now, United Nations, World Bank, IMF are dominated by the structures created after the war. But today, some of that is not relevant. The economic center of gravity is shifting away from Europe and US to that extent. And the fact that the consuming populations are here. You know as well that the, the growth of consumption in the West is plateauing. If this is where the growth is going to be, then this region it is variously described as, as I say, growth economies or global south, needs to reinvent itself. I think the important point here is that BRICS, again, coming back to the point you raised, can work or 
a grouping like this can work if they can work within each other, where they are not dependent, for example, on aid-based economy. Can we get this grouping to do a private investment, private capital-based economy, or will they continue to be aid-based? I think that is the issue they have to grapple with. Thank you very much, and it's very good to hear those perspectives. Of course, the BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank is one avenue, Julia. They're trying to uh, counteract the World Bank. It's still small compared to the major multilateral lenders, but we will see if concrete steps can be taken at this meeting uh, to make this a more consolidated grouping, Julia. Yeah, it's fascinating. To that point, the economic centre of gravity is shifting and so should the conversation. The question is, will the financial flows and the resources to help achieve that? David, great to have you with us. Thank you. David McKenzie there. Now, in the last 24 hours in Ukraine, Russia targeted the Zaporizhia region 96 times with shells and missiles. According to a regional official, one person lost their life and another was injured. Our Nick Payton Walsh is in Zaporizhia right now. Nick, it sounds like a, a night of air raid sirens and, and terror for the people there. What was it like? Yeah, in truth, to be honest, it, it hasn't felt enormously different. And I think that's what's important to recognise about numbers like 96 separate attacks. That is the daily reality of what Russia is doing to civilian areas. Here near Zaporizhia, occasionally you hear the sort of pressure waves from what sounds like incoming blasts hitting the city. Last night we could hear what definitely sounded like a drone, most likely Iranian-made Shahid drone flying over our heads quite directly and it is I think a reflection of how regular Russian indiscriminate attacks often on civilian areas have been. We rarely know from Ukraine whether military targets have been successfully hit uh, for operational security reasons but the reason we've been seeing this rise around the Zaporizhia region of attacks particularly that shocking number you referred to yesterday is essentially because of Ukraine's push south the counteroffensive they're trying to prosecute now some good news from Ukrainian officials from their perspective in that they say now they're inside the village of Robotine uh, frankly tiny 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 village uh, the census giving it less than 500 inhabitants a couple of decades ago. Uh, but now the focus of intense fighting between the Russian and Ukrainian sides. Ukraine saying they're now in there and saying they've evacuated remarkably about 20 civilians who were indeed still managing to live inside there despite uh, the intense conflict around that particular area. So increased uh, suggestions perhaps from the Ukrainians. They're seeing some progress. It's incremental but unfortunately, because of the nature of the defences they're fighting against, that's the nature of what kind of progress they're going to report. But still, no respite for civilians uh, on the receiving end of Russia's barrages. Julia? Mm. Nick, good to have you. Thank you. Nick Payton-Walsh there. Now on to a dramatic day in Thai politics. Real estate tycoon Seta Thawasin has been elected as the new prime minister, despite having relatively little political experience. He won the backing of both Houses of Parliament Tuesday, just hours after former Prime Minister Thakin Shinawatra was detained. CNN's Paula Hancocks has more on what led to his arrest. Cheers from supporters welcome Thaksin Shinawat back to Thailand. Bowing to a portrait of the king amid speculation the ousted Prime Minister may seek a royal pardon. Briefly meeting his followers, Thaksin was taken into custody and to court where he was sentenced to eight years on corruption charges brought during his 15-year self-imposed exile. Charges he denies. 
A doctor says he has underlying health issues and will be held in a separate room under 24-hour supervision. The former Prime Minister was ousted in 2006 by a military coup, but is still considered an influential and divisive figure. This supporter says, I am so happy and delighted because I've been missing him. I've joined his fight since it all began. The same day, Sreta Tavasin, the candidate for the Taksin Bak Per Thai party, was voted in by Parliament to become Thailand's new Prime Minister. Speaking to CNN before the election, he said the economy was the priority. Thailand has been in a bad economic situation for the last five to eight years. Okay, We are kind of in a coma. Pertai only came second in the election, but the Progressive Move Forward party, which won the most votes, was blocked from forming a government by conservative military-backed parties. Pertai has now aligned itself with two of those military-backed parties, a stunning turnaround, reversing a campaign pledge to keep the military out of politics. Taksin has come back. Pertai is leading a coalition government to protect and safeguard the establishment, which earlier accused Pertai for many years of uh, being subversive, accusing Taksin of being a usurper against uh, the, the, the crown. Experts point to the irony of the former enemy becoming the current partner. Pertai support base uh, is angry, upset and disappointed because this is a sellout. Pertai has said the coalition is necessary to break three months of stalemate since the election. The move also subverts the will of millions of voters who backed Move Forward, many of them young, hoping for deep structural reforms in Thailand. This Move Forward supporter says, I had high hopes for our future, my children's future, they would have had better lives. I'm disappointed and I don't know if the current ruling party will be betrayed. Thailand has seen more than a dozen successful coups since 1932. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And just into CNN, the first of 19 co-defendants in the criminal case in Georgia against former U.S. President Donald Trump has turned himself in. Scott Hall is a bail bondsman charged with crimes related to breaching the voting system in Coffee County, Georgia. These are live pictures of the Fulton County Jail where Scott Hall surrendered. Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in on Thursday. Okay, coming up on the show, a Vietnamese car company with plans to rev up the e-market in the United States. I speak to the CEO of VinFast following last week's US IPO. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Now, what started out as a company selling noodles in Ukraine has now turned into one of the newest players in the electric car market. VinFast was founded in 2017 by Vietnam's largest private conglomerate, VinGroup. Its first models were combustion engine cars, but last year, a complete change of gear, switching immediately to producing EVs only. Now, four electric models are already in production, with two more expected by year-end. Now, after VinFast shares had a red-hot debut on the Nasdaq, it also has big plans to expand U.S. operations. The company recently broke ground on a factory in North Carolina that should start production in 2025. There is a lot going on. And joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Madame Thuy, the CEO of VinFast. Madame Thuy, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations on the IPO last week. It's a huge milestone, I think, for Vin Group, but also a huge moment for you and the team at VinFast. Describe it, how it felt. Thank, thank you very much, Yula, for having me on the call. Uh, well, it was uh, very exciting. We were pleasantly surprised by, uh, by the warm welcome of the market. Um, uh, we think that, you know, the, uh, the market uh, recognized our competency and our... Um, you know, the market needs some, somebody like us. So we're very, very excited. I mean, there was some commentary that were suggesting you have a bigger valuation than Ford, you have a bigger valuation than Volkswagen. Um, I think we should point out there's only 1% of the shares available. So that creates volatility in this moment. Is that a distraction from the broader, bold ambitions, I think, of the company now? Talk about the plan from here. Uh, well, we, um, as uh, as always, we have uh, we have very bold plans uh, ahead of us. Uh, well, we um, we got listed. We believe that the market is uh, improving, uh, improving, so that would help with the fundraising in the future. Uh, for now, we have the backing of our parents' company, Vin Group, and our chairman uh, in the with a total commitment of two point five billion dollars. That should get us um, to. Uh, break even and profitability, uh, and uh, we we are building the plant in North Carolina. We are focusing on um, uh, manufacturing, delivering cars, expanding to the uh, all different markets. Uh, we are in Vietnam, North America, uh, very soon in Europe and ASEAN and the Middle East. So, uh, uh, so there's there's a lot uh, ahead of us. I can tell. Um- As your history proves, and you've already said it, um, you never lack ambition, bold ambition and tough changes, bold decisions, market moves, whatever it is, you have it in in the firm's history. But there are a lot of people wondering why the United States, there's huge competition, uh, the clients are exacting, some of them have criticised some of the products. I know you've responded and said, look, we'll adapt. Why the United States and why do you think you can take on Big players like Tesla, for example. How many vehicles can you sell in the U.S.? 
Um, I think exactly for the reason that you, you just mentioned, the U.S. is a very, uh, a very difficult, very challenging market. And if we can make it there, uh, we pretty much can build our brand and can make it anywhere. Um, I think we, uh, we believe in the strong future in the U.S., especially with our a new model, the hybrid models, where we welcome, where we join forces with um, with dealers uh, to be able to expand to the market more quickly. So we have already received a lot of uh, interest uh, from many different states. So I believe that, uh, uh, and also the market is really big. The, if you take the view that the whole world and uh, uh, the whole market in the U.S. is moving from internal combustion engine to to EVs. The market is enormous, and there's enough room for everybody. So we we believe that we should be able to take part um, in the market. I mean, the production capacity of that North Carolina plant, when it gets going in in 2025, is 150,000 vehicles, I believe. Are you right. talking about right. managing to sell that kind of number of cars on an annual basis, or do you expect to ramp that up too? I know the production capacity in Vietnam is what 300,000 at this moment. Well, we have uh, 300,000 uh, production capacity in Vietnam that can be ramped up to, uh, we have planned to ramp up to 950,000 uh, vehicles a year in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is a very good uh, manufacturing location. We have the lowest uh, cost base compared to many other OEMs. So the, no, nobody have the the cost base, the labor cost base, uh, for example, and, and the whole supply chain that we have. So that's a big advantage. Um, the manufacturing complex in uh, in North Carolina will start with um, 150,000 vehicles per year, uh, but that can be uh, ramped up as well. Talk to me about orders, because I know the VF8 starts at around $46,000. You're now taking reservations for the, the VF9, which I've taken a look at too. What can you tell me in terms of the kind of demand that you're seeing and, and what you hope to see in terms of ramp up of that now that you're, you've IPO'd and you're, um, you have adverts and you're out there sort of selling the brand? Right. We, um, uh, we have about, um, uh, I mean, we, we have uh, actively... Uh, try to um, convert the uh, pre-orders, if you will, to into like um, um, hard orders. Uh, and right now we have about, uh, so we reduce the numbers of, of uh, pre-orders. That's what I meant. And uh, right now we still have about 26,000 uh, pre-orders globally, about um, 10,000 is from the U.S. Um, and about two-thirds of that is um, for VF9. So... Uh, very, very overwhelming uh, number of orders for VF9 and uh, a lot of people are waiting for the VF9 in the US. And you're confident that the production capacity that you have can can meet that demand? You're saying it's not about demand, it's a supply question. And finally, what do you think the Uh, biggest... Go on. I'm sorry. um, what, What do... I was just going to say, what do you think the biggest impediment, what's the biggest restriction on EV adoption today? Is it price? Is it fear of being able to charge it? What do you think the, the biggest holdback is for customers today? I think uh, having the products for everybody, uh, having the product that fit everybody's budget is um, is the biggest um, holdback um, to the adoption. Uh, I think the charging in the US uh, is actually... Um, I mean, it's growing, it's getting better. But we, for example, we have access to about 73 
thousand charging points in the U.S. and that, um, and with the growing number of charging points uh, and growing number of partners that we have, uh, we believe that should be sufficient um, and and continue continue to be better. Uh, but I think the the issue is to have um, an EV for. Um, every budget. So uh, our mission is to make EVs accessible to everyone. And that's why we have a whole lineup of vehicles from um, the little one, like the VF3, um, uh, which is uh, like 15,000-ish um, dollars EVs for uh, very cute, very nice uh, EV2, like the VF9, um, full-size, um, three-row um, SUV. So we have, uh, we have a vehicle for everybody. Uh, and that's what we're trying to uh, fulfill our mission to make uh, EVs accessible to everybody. Yeah, I mean that uh, to have an EV on the ve- on the road at uh, fifteen thousand dollars or northwards of that, I think would be a, a huge game changer Ish. in the United about. States. About, <laughs> about. yes. Um, final question to bring it back to to financial markets. If there were investors out there that didn't manage to get that teeny one percent that was available, when might? Might they get an opportunity perhaps to invest at some point in the future if you plan to raise more money or release more shares? Can you give us a hint, Madame Tui? Well, I think uh, the um, uh, we, we continue exploring the um, opportunities for follow-on transactions. Uh, and uh, I, um, I anticipate that we should be able to do it in the next um, few months. Uh, also, the... Um, uh, most of the shares will come out to block up in the next uh, six months to to a year as well, so that when there will be more liquidity on the market as well. Wow, we look forward to that and to uh, speaking to you again soon. Congratulations once again on the uh, US launch and the IPO. Madam Tree, the CEO of Invest, great to chat to you once again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. Okay, so to come, Microsoft gaming out concessions to ensure British regulators approve its multi-billion dollar Activision Blizzard deal. The details next. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are open for business this Tuesday. The Wall Street tech bulls hoping that it's a terrific Tuesday. What are we seeing? Well, we've got the major averages. We've got the Nasdaq higher by some seven-tenths of 1%. So that's certainly in the lead. The Dow Jones thinking about it relatively unchanged. As you can see, we've also got to U.S. Treasury yields ticking higher once again. So I think equities watching certainly what the bond market investors are doing. Macy's, in the meantime, shares pressuring the retail sector, specifically the company beating on earnings. Yet, look at that stock, warning that consumers are falling behind on credit card payments with delinquencies rising. Macy also being forced to mark down merchandise to help sales too. The company citing, quote, macroeconomic pressures impacting shoppers. That stock down near 9% on earnings. And Microsoft has made a major concession to British competition regulators to try and save one of the biggest tech takeover deals ever. It's $69 billion acquisition of video gaming giant Activision Blizzard. It comes after the UK market's watchdog blocked the deal, putting it at odds with regulators in the EU and the United States. Anna Stewart joins me now. Well, the EU and the United States had issues too, let's be clear, but the uh, CMA (laughs) has been the toughest critic of this deal because they're worried about competition in the cloud gaming market. What's the concession here and do we think it's enough? 
Yeah, the FTC in the US wanted to block it but couldn't. The EU got some concessions. Will this be enough for the UK regulator, which remains the last big hurdle, I would say? So the concession that's been added to the deal is... Activation Blizzard will sell its streaming rights outside of the EU to Ubisoft, which essentially means that Microsoft wouldn't be able to exclusively use its own cloud streaming service. Now, that's quite a big difference. And also it means that it's not just Activision games on Activision currently, but any games for the next 15 years. It's a major concession. And I think the CMA will look at this very carefully. Will it move the needle? The deadline for this latest examination is October 18th, Julia. It could even open a phase two for further examination. This deal was first announced in January of last year. It's entirely possible we will still be talking about it in January of next year. And beyond. (laughs) It's going to take a while, even if this gets past it, to get this deal done. Now, raise your arm if you'd like to hear about the (laughs) soft bank arm. IPO. I would, Anna. I remember this deal being done in in 2016. A whopping deal. Extraordinary, too, for the UK technology sector. Now what? Could be worth an arm and a leg if it IPOs once again. So this company, Arm, is something of a crown jewel in the UK tech sector. SoftBank bought it in 2016, which meant it was delisted from the London Stock Exchange. And now looks set to be listing in on the Nasdaq in the US, which has generated a lot of negative headlines, I have to say, over here in the UK, given it is really the crown jewel of our tech sector. It'll be an interesting one. This is actually plan B for SoftBank, which wanted to sell it to NVIDIA, a big arrival, but was blocked from doing that by regulators. It was going to sell it for $40 billion. Now, we don't have the price range for the listing. We don't know how many shares will be sold. But currently, Reuters believes that it will be valued around 60 to 70 billion dollars. I think that's double what it was valued when SoftBank bought it in 2016. The big question, will investors agree with such a lofty valuation? Yes, it's major um, when it comes to smartphones. I think like 99% of smartphones in the world have a chip from this company in it. The bigger question is, given people have smartphones for longer and sales are dipping, can it lead in the AI race? And that's where NVIDIA currently dominates. So huge question marks, I think, about the growth of this company. But hey, we've not had a blockbuster IPO for a while, so I'm excited. I know I was about to say, or any real IPO, quite frankly. <laughs> Previous conversation, uh, you know, kept out of it. It's been a very quiet market due to uh, rising interest rates, of course. It's had a chilling effect. We shall see. Anna Stewart, always armed and ready with great information. very good. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, still ahead. Accenture has its eyes on AI, the consulting giant, spending billions of dollars expanding its artificial intelligence systems and its urging clients to invest too. Accenture's CEO discusses all after this. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Welcome back to First Move. Shares of artificial intelligence chipmaker NVIDIA are on the rise for a second straight session ahead of its closely watched earnings report out Wednesday. NVIDIA soared more than 8% Monday on hopes that corporate uptake of AI will rapidly expand in the years ahead. 
And shares of Zoom under pressure in early trade, too, but announcing on its earnings call Monday that it has a, quote, aggressive roadmap for rolling out AI features for video conferencing. In the meantime, IT services and consulting firm Accenture is set to supercharge its AI strategy, as well as Accenture investing $3 billion over the next three years, not just to beef up its own use of AI, but to help clients utilize AI tools to their advantage, too. Accenture also set to double its AI-focused staff to 80,000 workers to help drive that strategy forward. And I'm pleased to say Julie Sweet, the CEO of Accenture, joins us now. Julie, fantastic to have you on the show. It's a very splashy headline, I think. Can you just put that $3 billion over three years into context? What proportion of that is that compared to the other investment spending you'll do in that time? Julia, it's a very significant portion of our investment, Uh, although one of the things that we really believe in is that in order to help our clients, we need to invest at scale. Uh, And when you think about the ability to double our amount of people from 40,000 to 80,000 in that period of time, given how much everyone is struggling with getting these important skills, we think this will really make a difference both to Accenture and to our clients. Yeah, the headline was the other uh, catchy part of this as well. I mean, I know you've been training your staff since 2019 to get them comfortable with the concepts behind AI and what I think it's going to mean in the future as best we know. Um, How hard is it going to be to hire 40,000 people for this purpose in an incredibly tight labor market? Where are you looking to hire One of the advantages we have is that we already spend over a billion dollars a year in training our people, and we've demonstrated that we can do that over different cycles. So, for example, cloud was a big cycle, and many of the people that we trained in cloud make up that workforce today. And so our investment is not just around hiring, but it's about retraining our people. And this is going to be an important part of the future for our clients. And we're helping our clients do the same. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think a lot of the conversations around the impact of AI come back to jobs, whether there's going to be jobs that are made superfluous in the short term, new jobs created in the longer term, and that period in between perhaps where there is either a skills shortage, a skills gap and a mismatch. How concerned are you, whether it's for your business or for other businesses, that we simply have a period of time where um, there aren't the right workers or the right jobs available for the workers that we have? Well, I think stepping back for a moment, Julia, that we really see ourselves entering what I would call the decade of AI. And so it's important to recognize that AI is a technology, including uh, the exciting Gen AI, that will have an incredibly powerful impact on the next decade. How that impact is done really depends on how companies, governments, and society embrace AI. And one of the big components of that will be to recognize its power and then invest in being able to retrain. As a company that went from less than 20% digital cloud and security to over 70% digital cloud and security in a six-year period from 2014 to 2019, we did so mostly by educating and training. That should inspire 
companies and governments to recognize that if they embrace the change to AI and then invest in reskilling, this can be an incredibly positive impact for all. That's a mind-blowing statistic in terms of transition even before the pandemic hit, which I think says something about the transformation of the business. Um, how do you help CEOs that are perhaps watching this, that you're discussing on a, with the, on a daily basis about how they even begin to approach this? I know one of the ways that I've seen you talk about is to just take it back to base principles and say, look, where can things like predictive AI help us with our data analytics or where can generative AI with uh, design and content creation perhaps help us? Can, can it be that simple in terms of the way that you think about how AI can help the business rather than just sort of throwing money at everything and perhaps investing in the wrong place, which is dangerous at this point in time too. Well, Julia, first of all, if you ever get tired of your current gig, you can certainly come to Accenture because you just articulated very well how uh, some of the ways that we're talking about AI. So thank you. I would start, uh, and I always do start with CEOs, with, as you said, the basics, which is that before you can even use AI, you have to have the right digital core. And what do I mean by that? AI only works if you have data. In order to access data in real time and quickly, you need to be in the cloud. You need to have modern systems that allow you to understand your talent, that allow you to understand your financial data. And this digital core is the differentiator right now between companies who are actually able to leap and use AI to grow more, to optimize their costs, and those that cannot. Because if you are not in the cloud, if you haven't invested in your data architecture, you're not actually able to um, take advantage of that. And keeping in mind, today, only 40% of the workloads that could be in the cloud are in the cloud, which means there's a lot of haves and have-nots when you think about who is going to be able to use AI. And so much advice to CEOs is to get real and face where are they in building the digital core and how they can leapfrog so that they're not left behind where those who are ahead are embracing AI and transforming their industries. Yeah, it's such a great point. Um, we're at the beginning in the early stages of cloud transition, never mind adding on another layer with artificial intelligence. Um, just one of the things, obviously, that CEOs have to think about. Um, we're heading into Jackson Hole this weekend, Julie, and I just want to get your take on what CEOs are talking to you about in terms of concerns, risks, whether it's the outlook for the U.S. economy, interest rates, concerns about China. What's the thing that, that people are sort of coalescing around at this moment as being perhaps of greatest concern? Right now, the big conversation is how to navigate what looks to be an ongoing um, era of a lot of uncertainty, both on the economic side and the geopolitical side, as well as technology. And I think that's something that's really different. We always used to talk about geopolitical uncertainty or economic uncertainty, but the companies who are most focused on how to be resilient now see the trifecta, technology, geopolitics, and economics. And that is a different way of looking at the world and in establishing strategy. And we're spending a lot of time on CEOs on how they embrace this new type of resilience, which has to have technology 
at the center in order to be successful. Yeah, we need AI because we need more hours in the day, quite frankly, to uh, keep a grip on all of it. Uh, Julie, fantastic to chat to you. Um, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Julie Sweet there, the CEO of Accenture. Okay, so to come. In a global world, we can take connection for granted from communication to trade. We look at how one company in Ghana is taking that connection digital. Welcome back. Trade in Africa can often take longer and can cost more compared to other parts of the world. Just 12% of Africa's total economic activity comes from regional trade. That's a rate at least four times lower than in Asia and across Europe. But one Ghanaian company is taking on these challenges by digitizing logistics across the continent. Swapping the battery out on this electric motorcycle takes about a minute, allowing drivers to recharge without the weight. These bikes and their batteries belong to a Ghanaian startup called Kofa, which hopes to improve energy access across the continent. We're building out a battery network using transportation as sort of our primary use case because that's how you get the highest use of energy out of the battery network. But our batteries can be used for a variety of applications. Kofa has opened seven swap stations across Accra. The team designs this network in Ghana, but it imports most parts from China, which can be a tricky process for a young company. We're a startup and, and not a big team, and so anything that can remove a blocker for us is massive for us. Luckily for Della, help happened to be a stone's throw away. Jetstream Africa is an e-logistics platform based just east of Accra that is transforming cross-border trade. The company simplifies the manual shipping process by centralizing it online. The import and export industry requires at least nine vendors. None of those parties work for the same company. They don't use the same technology and many of them don't use any technology at all. They don't speak the same language, they don't use the same currency, and the cargo has to move through all of them. Jetstream Africa's digital one-stop shop connects these different groups. Customers supply basic info about their goods, and behind the scenes, Jetstream Africa handles the rest. It also provides live tracking info and compiles analytics to help inform decision-making. Several competitors across Africa offer digitized supply chain services but Misha says her company's approach to financing sets it apart. We finance customers, not just on the customs duties or the freight costs, even the cost of their goods so that they can ship at their full capacity. For us, even though it is risky to lend money to um, customers who can't get loans from banks, it's the only way, I'm convinced, it's the only way that we're going to drive transformation in global trade in Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa scored lowest in the World Bank's ease of doing business rankings, which measures factors like time, cost and regulatory environment. But many experts think digital tools can help improve the region's standing. Della has been working with Jetstream Africa since day one. This year, the team hopes to double the number of swap stations across Ghana, a target made possible by this partnership. We're very proud to be where we are, and we're very lucky to have Jetstream sort of backing us and helping us towards that goal. 
Breaking news into CNN and it's good news. Two of the children trapped in a chairlift in Pakistan have been rescued. That's according to a military source. It now means six people, including four children, remain stuck in that chairlift, dangling hundreds of meters over a mountainous region. They have been there for hours. Officials say the children were headed to school when one of the chairlift's cables snapped. Officials say the rescue efforts have been hindered by strong winds and the sun is about to set there. Officials are sending food to those trapped inside. Any further updates, we will bring them to you. For now, that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.